We're in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 190, 198. So, 1 Samuel 13, uh, verses 5 through 15. For 40 years, I led God's people, and then they asked for a king. For 40 years, I had judged their disputes. I had received God's word and shared it with them. I had urged them to turn from their false gods and to worship and serve the true God, our God. For 40 years, I had led them into battle against their enemies. But then when I grew old, they asked for a king. I protested. They had the Lord as their king. What need did they have of any human king? But the people insisted they wanted to be like all the other nations. I took this matter to the Lord and the Lord told me, it's not you they're rebelling against, it's me they have rejected. But if a king is what they want, the Lord said, then let them have a king. And so God gave them Saul, a handsome man, a head taller than any of his peers, God directed me to anoint Saul king over his people. I said to them, do you see the man that the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. And then the people shouted, long live the king. I explained the rights and the duties of the kingship to them. I wrote them down on a scroll and deposited them before the Lord. While Saul was king, he was only king under God. They needed to understand. God was still their true king, their highest king. Saul had delegated power. He must still respect and obey, though, the word and the law of the Lord. So I gave King Saul and the people God's word. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord, and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you, as it was against your ancestors. And so we made Saul king in the presence of the Lord, and there we sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord, and Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. Not only that, but the Lord dramatically uh, confirmed to Saul and to all the people that God was with Saul. While all the people stood before us during the wheat harvest, the dry season, I told them, stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. I will call on the Lord to send thunder and rain. And that very day, during the dry season, God brought a thunderstorm. And all the people stood in awe of the Lord. Through me, God encouraged Saul, our new king, with other signs of God's favor as well. I predicted each one, and then each one came to pass. As Saul left me, I told him, first, you will meet two men sent from your father. Second, you will meet three men who will offer you loaves of bread. Third, you will meet a procession of prophets, and you will be filled with the Spirit and prophesy with them. And each of these signs came to pass, just as I said. Reassurance for Saul. But before Saul left, I also told him two other things. First, 
Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. And second, I told him, go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. Well, my first command, Saul certainly fulfilled with God's blessing and power. You see, our country of Israel was weak and vulnerable at this time, militarily speaking. Various foreign powers were encroaching on our borders. We couldn't stop them. They were seizing towns. They were terrorizing our inhabitants. They were looting our farms. The Philistines were our biggest oppressors. They controlled much of the land, even imposing a monopoly on blacksmithing so that our troops had no weapons and our farmers had to pay high prices to have their tools mended and sharpened. More about the Philistines later. But first, I want to tell you about the Ammonites. They besieged our town of Jabesh-Gilead and they threatened to gouge out of the right eye of everyone in that town. When Saul heard of this, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him and he burned with anger. So he mustered over 300,000 troops from among the Israelites and he rescued our town of Jabesh-Gilead. Saul had definitely done whatever his hand had found to do and God was with him. This is what the Lord had promised to do through Saul to, to make him a military savior that we needed. The Lord had told me, Saul will be ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people for their cry has reached me. So Saul had mightily delivered Jabesh Gilead from the Ammonites. And next it would be the Philistines. That that greater threat, that greater problem for Israel. But first, Saul must meet me at Gilgal. That was the second command I'd given him as the Lord's prophet. He was to wait for me there. I would come after seven days and offer burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, and then I would tell him from the Lord what he was to do. This was when the trouble began. Around this time, the Philistines had come with an invasion force from their land. They were down in the eastern plains, and they had come up into our hills, and they brought 3,000 chariots and 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. In a move of strategic aggression, they had cut our land right in half, taking the key town of Michmash. From Michmash, they could command the, the east-west road, protecting their supply, land, uh, supply line to the west, and gaining access to the heart of Israel and even Gilgal in the east. Yet, it was worse than that for us because Michmash also afforded them command of the north-south ridge road. In effect, they cut our land and our defenses in two, keeping those from the south and those from the north from joining forces together against them. In the meantime, after his victory at Jabesh-Gilead, Saul had sent home most of his troops. With him now, he had only 3,000 men. 3,000, none with a sword or a chariot, up against the Philistine hordes and their numerous war machines. Our situation was desperate. The, the Israelites were terrified. 
they, they ran and hid in caves and, and thickets among the rocks, in pits and cisterns. Some fled and, and they kept fleeing all the way across the Jordan to the far reaches of Israel on the other side. What a situation our, our new inexperienced king faced. Saul left his military position in the hills and retreated before the Philistines to the Jordan Valley in the east to Gilgal where I had arranged to meet him. All the troops still with him were quaking with fear. And there he waited for me as we had agreed, as the Lord had commanded. There at Gilgal, the the sacrifices would take place. No one, not even the Philistines, would think of going into battle without seeking the favor of their gods. How much less would we, outnumbered though we were on the one hand and yet on the other, assured by God that our God would deliver us from these Philistines by the hand of Saul. We desperately needed the favor and aid of our God. Have you ever noticed that God seems to love these situations? <laughs> when the odds are stacked against us, when, when success seems impossible and, and his people, we are weak, then the Lord loves to show up in strength and to do the unimaginable to, to God's own glory and to the delight and praise of his people. And so Saul waited for me there at Gilgal. Saul waited on the Lord one Two, three days, four days, five days, six days, seven days. It was the seventh day and still I had not come. The the people, the men, the soldiers began to scatter. Precious time had been lost. The, The Philistines had had time to fully dig in up in the hills, to reinforce their defenses, to plan their attack. Perhaps even now they were sweeping down from the hills with their chariots to attack Gilgal. This was not the place you wanted to fight them and their chariots. In the valley here at Gilgal, they would have the advantage. Better to face them back in the mountains where their chariots would be of less use. More Israelite men left. By that point, Saul was down to a mere 600 men. He he felt he could wait no longer. The pressure was too great. Perhaps I wasn't coming. He decided he would perform the necessary sacrifices before battle so he could fight the Philistines before he had no men left to do so with. And so he did. Saul took matters into his own hands. And that is when I arrived to find the burnt offering already sacrificed. Saul came out and greeted me. I shot back, what have you done? I saw that the men were scattering, he replied, and you did not come at the set time, and the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. In other words, what choice did he have? The men were cowardly, he blamed. You were late, he accused me. And the enemy might come down against me at Gilgal, and I had not sought the Lord's favor, he reasoned. And so he concluded, I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. He was right. Time was running out. The situation was going from bad to worse. You might think I was being too hard on him to expect him to keep waiting, to keep doing nothing in such circumstances, except for one thing. There was one thing Saul had not counted on. 
And that was his greatest asset of all, the Lord. How could Saul have turned against the very one who was his biggest help? The one who had anointed him king. The one who had given him sign after sign to confirm and prove God's favor toward him. The one who had promised about Saul, this is the one through whom I will save my people from the Philistines. I don't care if the Philistines all came down to Gilgal with a million chariots. I don't care if every last one of Saul's men abandoned him. It had never been about Saul's abilities or resources anyway. It had always been about what the Lord would do through him if he would listen and submit himself to the Lord's word. But Saul did not. And so I replied, Saul, you have done a foolish thing. You you have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of the people because you have not kept the Lord's command. A man after the Lord's heart. Someone who could face an overwhelming situation like this and respond with words like these. My enemies are in hot pursuit. All day long they press their attack. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise. In God I trust and am not afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. I will wait for the Lord. My whole being waits And in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love. And with him is full redemption. You see, let me tell you what God is like. God isn't interested in us doing God a favor on our own terms, in our own way. God's not impressed with our smarts, with our strength or abilities, with our brilliance or our best ideas. Sure, God will use all of that. God delights in how God's made us and wants to use those gifts that he's given us, but only, only as we humbly submit ourselves to God's purposes. As I later told Saul after another mess up on his part, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And so before we act, we we need to take time to quiet ourselves before the Lord, to listen to what God is saying to us, and to remember and obey what God has said. This requires being still. It requires waiting. Fools rush in, but not those who follow God. 
No, it's those who wait on the Lord who will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Well, thank you, Samuel, for reminding us of this story. For reminding us that fools rush in, and so we are to wait on the word of the Lord. Are you like me and you needed to hear this? (laughs) I am. (laughs) And that's why we've been focusing um, as a church on being spirit sensitive and dependent these past weeks. Not charging ahead in our own strength, but learning to trust, learning to depend, learning to listen for God's guidance. And as this story reminds us, um, hearing from God begins by being willing to listen to what God has to say. Um, Listening requires an obedient and willing heart. In a few minutes, um, I thought we could respond by doing a a listening exercise together um, to see what God might have been saying to us this morning. But before we do that, Jerry Faella is going to come and share a story about a time when God was clearly guiding him and what it was like for him to listen and to respond to God. Come on, Jerry. Good morning. Um, Thank you, Pastor Dick, for letting me follow you. That was quite the hard act to follow. Um, For those of you that were at the Thanksgiving service, Uh, Last year, you heard part of this story, so uh, for the next several minutes, feel free to Snapchat, tweet, Instagram, whatever you want to do. For those of you that don't know me, uh, you have to bear with me for a couple minutes, because I have to give you the lead to this this story that really had a profound impact on my life. Um, I spent my career in working for local government 33 years, uh, and many times it felt a lot longer than 33 years. And um, after I did retire, I was approached to head up an organization, an association known as the New York State Municipal Management Association. Now, these are the career professionals of local government across the state. We serve in cities, counties, and villages. We're non-political. We're the heads of the local jurisdictions, and we do the administrative work. You know, we work on the police, make sure your services are being delivered, public works, health services, recreation, etc. Now, as part of my duties for this association, I was responsible for setting up training programs. And this past October, uh, we decided to do a training program on police-community relations, given all of the unrest that people had witnessed in the news over the past year. Because we felt as local government managers, we thought it was our responsibility to get out in front of this, take proactive steps to minimize the possibility of a conflict in our communities. So to put the program together, I worked with this University of Binghamton, and we set up the program, and as luck would have it, we began to establish the program and the speakers and discussion themes. I come to find out that the mayor in the city was going through a political battle with his human rights commission. He disbanded the commission, removed the chair, started a lot of chaos in the city. And, of course, one of the speakers that the university had suggested that I use was a former member of the commission. So when that got back through the association, there was a lot of anxiety there. And a lot of us thought, my gosh, we're walking into this political firestorm. Okay? So we put a unique dimension into this training program, 
And of course, it started me on a new path to assure everyone that the internal city politics would not enter the program that would really focus on the issue of police community relations and what's important. So there was a lot of anxiety. I assured everybody that the press wouldn't be there. We're not going to have a big situation like that. And of course, there was a lot of praying on my part to make sure that this thing evolved without a problem. So let me just cut to the chase. The program went off well. There was no hitch. We had uh, no riots, no revolutions, no demonstrations. Everything was pretty good. Now, one of the speakers at this program was the head of the Boys Club in Binghamton. And he was an amazing young man. He was very powerful. He was so powerful, a speaker, that several of the police chiefs after the meeting came up to him and said, would you please come and talk to our departments about what you had said here? And he was amazing. And he, talked, he started to talk about what it takes to raise a male person of color in an urban environment. And he said you needed three things. You needed a good family structure to ground the child. You needed a school district that would spark interest in their education and learning. And you needed an entire community to provide that young child with opportunities to socialize, after school programs, recreation, athletics, keep them busy. And he said when one of those three things are missing, the other two have to work much harder where the child becomes subject to life with trouble. When the program was over, I went back to the hotel room, and I was pretty relieved. I thought the big burden was lifted from my shoulders, and I was thankful that it worked because we had a lot of students there from Binghamton, and it was a success, and people walked out of there saying it was a good idea. So the personal goal for the event was achieved. Now, this came at a time when I had some anger because I'm stuck in the hotel room in Binghamton, and on the preceding Saturday, this is a Monday, a Monday, Monday night I'm there, and on the preceding Saturday, one of my best friends for 27 years and a close family friend passes away. And I'm angry because instead of being there with them, I'm stuck in this Binghamton hotel. And then the following day, I had to drive up to Plattsburgh for another meeting that night. And I was asking myself, why did God put me in this position not to be where I felt I was to be with my family and their family, but just stick me in a hotel room in Binghamton? Didn't quite understand it. So 6 o'clock that night, I got, kind of got hungry, and I just started to look for a place to go eat. So I walked past this establishment that they had recommended. It was loud. It was a bar crowd and noisy, and I said, I'm really not into that. I went down the street. There was a pizzeria there. It was empty, depressing. I wasn't in for that either. And I walk around the block, and I'm looking for some place to eat. And there's a young man in the doorway, and he says, do you have any money for food? So I reached into my pocket and gave him a few dollars, and I started to walk away. And God started to speak to me. Like, then he started to scream at me. And he said, you idiot, this is why you're here. I turned around, I went back to this young man, and I said, would you care to join me for dinner? Um, I just passed this little quiet pizzeria. We could sit down and have a conversation. No strings attached, but you're hungry and I'm lonely. So we sat down, went in, we ordered, we sat down. Believe me, there was a lot of tables to choose from. <laughs> he started to tell me his story. He was 27 years old. He grew up in New Jersey. He moved to Binghamton because his mother moved there with her new boyfriend. But the mother and the boyfriend really didn't want him in the house. He was kind of a third wheel hanging on. He had two younger siblings that were in the Binghamton School District. So he was moved out of the house. He went to social services. He got an apartment got a place to live, and he said to me that tomorrow he was going to go sign up for his GED. He started to tell me his life story. 
he grew up without a father. And he said, my problems began when I was 12 years old. He said, at 12 years old, I went off the front porch and I got into a very bad crowd. He spent most of his youth in jail for numerous crimes, some petty, some not so petty. He told me he watched his best friends get killed in a drive-by shooting, another one get killed in a gang fight. He himself was stabbed, shot at, he sold drugs. Anything bad you can think of, he did it. He had two children, different mothers each. They were down in New Jersey. He liked to go down and visit them, but the mothers really didn't want him hanging around because he was the bad influence. He grew up, no high school diploma, minimum family support, and this is where he ended up. And then I asked him if he ever prayed, and he said he did. So dinner came, we prayed over the meal, and we continued a conversation that night. We talked and discussed the power of God to get him through his past times of difficulty, even when he felt that all hope was lost. I told him about my experiences, where I was here, and I really wanted to be back home. And I said to him, even though God, you may not feel that God was with you in those times, and I talked about the parable of the two footsteps in the sand, um, I said he was always there for you, and he carried you through that time of trouble. So we continued to talk, and I, and I started to see in him the new path that he was trying to develop for himself and move out of that lifestyle that he had, getting his GED, and try to get a new life on this side of prison. I told him that it was important to keep praying and put his faith in God, because God will answer his prayers, because God had answered, had answered prayers for me, and I told him about that as well. And I said, that happens to you, even though you may not feel that you're worthy, it will come. God will come through for you. And then I told him about the program that we had, the speaker and the power of that speaker. And then I started to tell him that I thought he had a similar message to tell in life and that he had a higher calling, that someday he should be repeating his story to the other youth and maybe keep them from making some of the bad decisions that he made. So we finished dinner, walked outside, and before we left, he went to his apartment, he gave me a big hug, and I said another prayer, and then he left. So I get back to the hotel room, and I'm thinking of all the things I could have said, should have said, things that I didn't do, things it was too late to go back and change any of that. Couldn't, couldn't reverse that. I'll probably never see him again, but maybe I hope someday that I will. Because I hope I find someday a young man come to terms with his life, moving forward, and a man that has found God as this guy. So what resonates with me from this story is that there's thousands just like him, living a godless life, headed to a path of self-destruction, and every now and then I pray that the Lord will help them and change their life around as they're starting to work with this young man. And I thought back, too, about what Pastor Dick had said to us several weeks ago. And he challenged us with the question, he said, what is God telling us and what are we doing about it? God spoke to me that day. He gave me an experience that I'll never forget. It's one that I relate to a lot of people and I talk about. And now I understand why he put me in that hotel room in Binghamton. And I just hope my actions and words didn't disappoint him. Thanks. Cool, huh? When we obey God's leading, who knows where, what he's going to lead us into. So now it's our turn um, to take a minute and to be quiet and to think about what we heard this morning.
um, to think about what's one thing that struck you from this story of Samuel and Saul, or maybe from the story that Jerry told. Um, and I want to give you a minute and think about to think about that. For those of you who know the language, <clears throat> Kairos moment. What's your Kairos moment? What's the thing you think you need to pay attention to that God might be nudging you about this morning? I'll give you a minute. I want to invite you to ask yourself, um, what might God be trying to say to you this morning? Is there somewhere in your life that maybe you've been rushing in where God wants you to wait on him instead? And maybe there's something you need to apologize to God for where you rushed in and instead of waiting to him and you need to say you're sorry. Or maybe there's something God wants you to trust God for that he's saying, come on, trust me for this. So I'll give you another minute to think, um, what is it that God's saying to you personally? And as you think about that thing, um, what do you need to remember about God um, in order to trust God? Do you need to remember that God cares for you? That God is good? That God's powerful enough to take care of what concerns you? Will, will you trust God with this thing? And then the second question that Jerry repeated this morning after, what is God saying to me? The second question is, what am I going to do about it? <laughs> what will it look like to respond? So what can you do to act on what God is telling you? I'll give you a minute to think about that, to talk to God about that. Okay, if God's brought something specific to your mind this morning that you've been processing, I encourage you to share that with someone, to, um, to process it with them, maybe to let them hold you accountable to the thing you need to do, maybe to seek their input, 
Um, Because our goal is that we'd be the kind of community where we'd be growing together and being more spirit uh, sensitive and more spirit dependent. Let's respond in worship.